Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Catholic Creatives Podcast. Today, we spend some time in deep philosophical conversation with Christopher Haley, Director of Communications at the Hildebrand Project. Christopher is a poetry-loving former atheist who once started a philosophy club in high school and eventually made his way to the Catholic Church. He talks with us about living the reflective life, his journey to the faith, the philosophy of Christian personalism, and the best way to smoke a pipe in your home study. Big thanks to our Patreon sponsors who made this podcast possible. Let's dive in. Dude, thanks for just being willing to take some time out and talk. I'm glad to. I always enjoy the conversation and love love the mission. So honored to be invited. Uh, I mean, I've seen some of your past guests, so I feel feel like you guys are slumming a little bit with me, but glad to be here. So. <laughs> Yeah, man. So I'd love to just start with kind of some background on you and um, what you're doing right now, where you are. Um, actually, let's get some setting. Where are you at right now? Literally right now? Yeah, literally. I'm, li- right now. I, I'm literally in my in my office at home. It's an office by day and a study by night. You have to make that distinction. It's important. Do you smoke in your study ever? I, I'm just about to light a pipe. Yeah, I have a, uh, when we first moved into the house, there was a few weeks of no smoking inside. And then eventually I kind of got to the point like, I cannot work uh, without this. So I've got a setup. I've got, I've got an exhaust fan over to my left, which hopefully you can't <clears throat> hear. It's like an industrial exhaust fan. Um, and then the real trick, don't use, don't use air fresheners. They don't work. They just mask things. You have to get an ozone generator, which puts out O3, which breaks up the air molecules. It's kind of nuts. But so I have one of those, also industrial applications. So I have one of those running, uh, and it works. It works just fine. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. <clears throat> Not that I advocate smoking, but if you are going to smoke indoors, exhaust fan, ozone generator, you're set. All right. So everybody, Christopher Haley in his study, about to light up a pipe, and this is why we're having this conversation right now. <laughs> so, uh, what do you what do you do? When people ask you, like, what, what do you do? What do you say? Well, I tell them that I work for a philosophy company, full stop, and just wait and see how long it takes them to either ask a question or walk away. <laughs> What's the usual response when people ask questions about that? Uh, there are philosophy companies. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I say, well, there's one at least. Um, and, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I work at it. So, And then they say, how do you do that? And you go, so, well, I, I went to school for philosophy. What else do you do with a philosophy degree? Um, but work at a philosophy company. So, um, you know, if they, if they keep asking, I'll sort of say what we do, you know, at, at the Hildebrand Project, which really is to promote uh, a, a moral vision, a uh, philosophical vision for our world today that is most represented by Hildebrand and the School of Christian Personalism, and that we do that in publications and events and other programs um, to help keep this school alive, help it flourish, introduce new readers, uh, support new scholarship. Uh, you kind of figure out who you're talking to to figure out what parts might interest them. So one thing about that that's really interesting is that you also, in a way, run marketing for them as well, as you also do many other things. But that's that's one of the things that you're in charge of, right? Yes. Uh, it is a small company, so there, everyone wears lots of hats. But my, my two main hats are running the publishing house and doing all of our marketing communications. Which you're definitely... You've got something going on because, uh, so just to give everybody a little bit of background. So we got connected just through the Dallas community a long time ago, but then more recently by Erica Tai, who told me that I really needed to talk to this guy, Christopher, and then realized that we had actually met before and that you lived in Dallas, which 
I'm just kicking myself for not doing more to reach out and hang out. But uh, we sat down and had a great conversation where you tried to tell me that philosophy is important. And I tried to tell you that it wasn't and that it was a load of bullshit. And uh, you're like, uh, you need to come to this philosophy seminar and like realize that everything you're saying is uh, is garbage and that, you know, like find some healing in that. And you actually convinced me to go, dude. Uh, I purposely have like run as far away from anything philosophy as as possible for the, the majority of my life. And you convinced me to go to a philosophy seminar. So you were successful in at least getting one person who is a hard sell. <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think I might have convinced a few, but I'm very glad that you did. And it, I won't take all the credit because it takes a lot of courage and humility to say, huh, I might be wrong. Let me go spend a week of my life with a bunch of strangers uh, locked in a dorm room, basically, um, with a bunch of big books and see. Like, that's a big chance. Um, you know, it's Steubenville. There's no escape. Um, no. So, that, I, you know, that's that's commendable. Not a lot of people do that sort of thing. It was a, it was a great week. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that as our conversation progresses. But I'd love to hear just more about your story, man. I mean, one of the things about you that... I find really fascinating is your approach to philosophy and life is so holistic. One of my my big complaints about philosophy through my time just within the Catholic world has always been like that it seemed like a very armchair experience that people like sit down, they'll, they'll talk about the, uh, I don't know, the big questions of life, but it will have absolutely no, no relative impact on the way that they live and also feel very divorced from the experience of life. You are a man that loves the experience of life in every in every way. Like you you love music, you love literature, you are constantly reading. You are a man in the world as well as one that thinks deeply about it. And so I just kind of want to unpack like how this whole amalgam that is you just came to be. You know, like I'm really curious about that. So yeah, I'd love to hear just at least to begin that this conversation, who were you in high school? Was that something that you were already on the track to being there? Or like, yeah, I, in, in some sense, that's a that's a fun place to begin. Uh, high school was, you know, a strange time for everyone. I loved it though. Everyone talks about, you know, oh, high school is terrible. I had a great time. Um, you know, you're trying to find your identity and stuff like this. And uh, I went to a school that I liked a lot, but it was it was a big public school and. and uh, High school is not the most sort of challenging thing, so you get bored and you find other things to do, and you get into a lot of trouble, and so I got into a lot of trouble. Uh, I had, I was very fortunate and will, and will always be grateful for, for a few teachers I had, one in particular, who really sort of took me under her, her wing and gave me better books. Um, and it, it's, it's funny now, because the books that she gave me were Marx, Nietzsche, Mill, um, you know, utilitarianism and vitalism and communism. And, um, and, and so I was all about it. I was eating this stuff up and, you know, now I'm a Catholic and so I don't know if she thinks she did a good job or not. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like she thinks she might've failed. You know, that, that was really eye-opening. You know, it's eye-opening for every 16 year old to read Nietzsche. 16 year old boys should not read Nietzsche. Uh, <laughs> they all do though. But, uh, you know, I started this club. Um, it was called Apple. It was the Alternative Political Philosophy League of en Enlightenment, I think. You know, so we, we would get philosophy books because the library didn't have any philosophy books. And so we would get philosophy books and 
I would I would presume to teach them. I mean, it's just astounding in retrospect to look back on, on the arrogance of youth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would I would presume to teach my peers Nietzsche and, and these books, and uh, <laughs> that, you know I still don't really understand today. Um, so yeah, it, that's I guess when it was starting to it was beginning, and you know I I was in orchestras where sort of my love for, for, for at least the seed for my love of music was planted. Wait. What did you play in orchestra? Uh, bass, the string bass. Perfect. That fits your personality very well. Yeah, it's loud. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I had, I had a great time with that. I will say I didn't love music yet. I didn't lo- learn to love music until a few years later. But, but having the vocabulary there was extremely helpful. I, I can't imagine how I would have come to love it without that familiarity. So. so where did you go to high school? I went to Louisville. I'm a proud fighting farmer. I won the, the most valuable farmer, you know, MVP award or something one semester. That was the semester after I was kicked out the semester before. Um, it was, oh it was a very confusing um, time. But, you know, I was like the, I was Mr. Atheist, like just through and through card carrying. I mean, there was, I was a zealot, really. I was devoted to, you know, arguing with all the, you know, the stupid young Christians whom I later had to call back and apologize uh, to, which was a very odd uh, experience. Okay, so first question, when did you get kicked out and what happened there? Well, I, I can't get into too many details there, but it's, you know, it's it's the sort of stuff that kids do. So, you know, uh, I was, I'll, I'll just chalk it up to being bored and um, not, not properly challenged. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So were you always an atheist? Was that like where your family was or? Uh, no, I mean, my, you know, my, my family was... I mean, they're, they're, they're Christians, and, um, but we didn't really have any sort of Christian formation. I say none. I mean, we, we went occasionally to churches, um, but uh, it was mainly the you know, churches that my folks' friends went to. There was no real instruction or, hmm. you know, it was in the way that I think it is for a lot of people. It was sort of what polite people do um, right. is, is become Christian. And, you know, as I've grown older with my family, I've learned more about the, kind of the history behind that and, um, you know, my mother was, was Catholic and my father was not. And, um, I was baptized Catholic, but then never went to mass. It does turn out that the sacraments work. Here I am. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, it, it was really more of a, you know, it wasn't a part of my life uh, at all. And then Christians can sometimes be really uppity and annoying and anti-intellectual. And, and, I, and it was that that I was pushing against. And that's really what sort of drove me first to atheism was sort of a rebellion but also a sincere reaction to anti-thoughtfulness at a time when i was trying to become very thoughtful what made you want to become thoughtful because that's not something that most people especially in lewisville and in flower mount ever think about or want like hmm these are very good questions um and, and i mean at some point you know I have to say, like with you know, with St. Paul, like you really can't take credit for yeah. any of these things. I mean, they're just sort of the way that you are. Um, going for walks, um, trees, paying attention to things. Um, I think you know that's a theme I come back to a lot, which was best art- articulated in, in Rilke. I wouldn't have had the language for it before, but this quality of paying attention. Um, and you pay attention to anything, and it, and it sort of opens itself to you and reveals itself, and it's just fascinatingly interesting and uh so yeah i was i was i was interested uh i i wanted i but i can't i couldn't tell you why i mean i you know i read a lot when i was young but i didn't 
really love reading. Um, and, you know, I remember, so, you know, the first book I loved was Heart of Darkness, and which I read when I was like 16. You know, it was the first book I finished and read again, you know, but that was probably the moment I really loved reading. But before that, I, it was just fun. Uh, I don't know, having the freedom to explore, you know, we lived in a place that was, it was still, you know, you probably know it right down on 2499. It was nothing. Um, it was, we were just the only street with houses on it. And so it was just all woods and fields and I got to explore a lot. And, you know, my folks were wonderful in letting us do that. And, um, I think that that all helped a lot. I think, um, at least looking you know, like an old man, looking to the young kids today, you know, who don't, don't have this opportunity so much. Uh, you know, you can, you, I, I think you see a, a decrease in curiosity, natural wonder. Yeah. So you started to, to read and you had a teacher that's given you books and that ultimately led you to becoming a devourer of thought. And I'd love to hear, did, did you feel the difference between you and your peers when you were starting to, to have that kind of transformation? Like you had just gone through a wormhole and everything was different? Yeah, I, th I think it's always different and sometimes difficult to live a sort of thoughtful life and I mean it, it's one doesn't want to speak ill of, of anyone else but it is but it is the case that many people don't really lead the thoughtful or reflective life Aristotle would say they live a bovine <laughs> life um, and, uh, and and I, and I, that's that's true and it, it's very frustrating when you know you want to know things and other people it's not even that they have different answers it's that they don't even want to know um, and that that certainly still happens I mean I think at the time you know when you're young you think these are all just these are all the sheep, the last right. men, right? Like that Nietzsche talks about. You realize that's not, it's not quite as bad maybe as all that. But, but yeah, that, that was certainly difficult. It remains something that I think is difficult for people. Yeah. So that led you to like what? What happened next? <laughs> many, many things, of course. But you know, so I finished school and uh, I went to college early at, at University of North Texas first. I, I bounced all around. I basically went to every school on I thirty five in Texas. <laughs> if you're familiar with it eventually graduated from University of Texas. But yeah, you know, my first semester, I don't know how I did this, but I, I just, I kind of tricked them into thinking I knew more than I did. And so I started with nothing but upper level philosophy courses as, you know, an 18 year old. Um, I don't know, it was, it was really interesting. And I thought I knew a lot of stuff, but didn't. But what, what dawned on me sort of sort of the next part of the story was uh, realizing about a year or so later that um, that everything I knew was basically sort of Nietzsche forward. I had never read Plato. I had never read Aristotle. I had never read, certainly never read Augustine or Aquinas or anything like that. And uh, you think that you've seen the picture, but you've only seen just this tiny little little part of it. And uh, that was, so that was a big moment for, for me, just in my reading and studies, realizing that, you know, I started at the wrong end. Mm. And uh, this, this has been a theme, I think, in my life. But uh, and so you have to go back and begin again, uh, which which I was able to do, you know, a little bit later. What did that dawning look like? Where were you and what was you know, what all went into that? Were you reading a specific thing or in a conversation with someone that made you realize? Uh, good question. I think I, I had a almost a, a halcyon time, really, at um, for about a year when I went to, I moved to Austin with, you know, $60 and a case of wine and zero plants. And um, I was gonna go, well, I guess my plan was that I was gonna go to the University of Texas, Austin, but I was a transfer student, couldn't get in, complicated story. So I ended up going to St. Edward's, this Catholic school. And I'm, you're right, card-carrying atheist. But, you know, I was so, of course, convicted in my atheism that I knew that these stupid Catholics could not affect me in any way. And, uh, and so I was kind of, you know, biding my time there, but, uh, and I just, you know, I was so excited. I was going to argue with everybody. Um, 
but I didn't really get to because everyone was actually really nice um, and not more than nice. I mean, they were charitable. They were lovely people. And one professor in particular, Phil Thompson, who uh, runs the, uh, I guess he runs now the Aquinas Center at Emory. So if anyone from Emory is listening, go tell him hi, um, was uh, just so he would always entertain my objections, but always, you know, take them very seriously, but also give me better answers. And but more importantly, would just listen, you know, and I had never I think I had never encountered that. I didn't expect that. I all I expected was argument. Uh, I never expected conversation. Uh, and it was uh, it was disorienting, almost, you know, um, you know, and so you know, he was teaching Augustine and Aquinas. And, uh, you know, I found a lot that I that I liked there, um, much to my surprise and disappointment, I guess, at the time. So that, that's kind of what began to turn that around. And then when I did transfer to the University of Texas, um, that sort of completed the turn in some sense because I was finally at home with my people, the atheists, and I was really shocked and, you know, not to say poor things about my alma mater, which I love in many ways, but I went from this very Catholic and very open-minded place to this very atheist, very closed-minded place, and the transition was stunning. Um, the Catholics had no problem teaching me Nietzsche, teaching me Marx, whatever I wanted to know. The atheists had every problem in the world even entertaining the idea that someone might read Aquinas. And uh, that, so that, that, was, that was a shock. That was you know, sort of one of the markers on my path to conversion, I think. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I experienced a lot of like that within my own philosophy learning at like St. Thomas, Minnesota. But that was an interesting experience in that like when I was there and I was among Catholics, like we were a very small minority and it constantly felt like we were under the gun and that like everyone around us was trying to like destroy us. And so the way that we learned philosophy was pretty combative. And then like within the Catholic space. And then it felt pretty combative within the, uh, like the rest of the school. So it didn't feel like there was a lot of conversation there. But when I went to Ave Maria and most of the people that were at Ave were Catholic, I remember reading and being taught the Protestant Reformation and no one was like freaking out or just like laying down these massive like condemnations on Luther. It was just like, yeah, so here's what happened. And this is where like church had some issues like it was very objective and not like emotional it was just such a such a different experience of being open to you know intellect like we didn't have to be defensive about it so i think that's something that's a really interesting thing that that played a role for you in mm. opening you up yeah the, the the freedom of inquiry that you that you found or that i found in, in the, the church was surprising and and I know that that was a very fortunate experience, and it's not everyone's experience. I mean, a lot of Catholic schools are not like that, and that's certainly not the way that their philosophy departments are. Um, and I think, you know, something that we had talked about before, and I think one of the reasons a lot of people don't end up liking philosophy is because a lot of the people who are in it aren't really in it to learn and to love, but they're in it to be right, to mm. correct. Um, and not even so much, they're not even so much in it so that they can be correct, but so that they can correct others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and you know, with with some sort of malicious glee, but uh, uh, there there is a lot of that, unfortunately, and, and and I mean, it makes it makes sense why people want to use philosophy as a sort of bulwark for the faith and to guard against the modern errors of which there are there are many. But you can't. I, I'm stealing this line from someone. I forget who, but you can't weaponize culture, and and it's the same thing with with philosophy. Like you can't weaponize it. You you turn it into something that it isn't um, at that point, and it will fail. 
Yeah. And it will, it will, it will fail the people, you know, who, who are studying. Them. That is awesome. I love that. You can't weaponize culture. You can't weaponize philosophy. It's beautiful. So tell me the next phase. So you get to UT Austin, you're in the middle of the shrines of paganism and <laughs> what happens next? <laughs> It really, it really was. Uh, you know, I, I had a wonderful time. Uh, I met I met some some good people. Um, you know, there's no no substitute for God's angels, really, for people, for bearing His message. So I had, uh, you know, I, I I made this one really good good friend who remains my good friend to this day, who was this, who was a Baptist at the time, I think, or some sort of a Calvinist. And he was a painter, and you know, I've always loved art, and um, that's that's been really my great love. Philosophy is sort of what I do, you know, because I'm not a very good poet. Um, or to help me understand poetry, and you know, we would we just got in this long series of arguments, and so that's sort of going on. At the same time, you know, I'm I'm really at that age. You're really thinking about everything and trying to figure out where you are in life. And I'm really trying to trying to be, you know, a good atheist, like trying to sort of go down that path and live a consistent life. And um, you know, more and more, it's just sort of uh, not working. And I guess I'm also I'm reading the wrong books for it to be an atheist, right? Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, you know, the young atheist cannot be too careful which books he reads. I was not careful enough. Uh, I read Augustine. <laughs> I ended up reading Lonergan. I read Vogelin. I mean, I was totally reckless um, in the things I was reading. And, you know, and there were just always these things that would stick with me as, you know, and what you're looking for, right? I mean, is you're looking for a cohesive explanation of the world, right? I mean, not just some sort of thing to stop thinking, like a way to, you know, here's a system you don't have to think anymore, but but a, a way of, of interpreting cohesively the meaning of the phenomena in your life, right? Like, why is that thing beautiful? What does it mean that I love this person? You know, what does it mean to love? Um, and uh, all these, these things that fill your life. And I kept finding, you know, increasingly inadequate accounts of them in, in the the sources I was, the atheist sources I was reading, and better accounts of them in the Christian sources I was reading, which was, you know, was very frustrating. Um, but there were probably two things, two intellectual things that kind of put a full stop to the uh, atheism. One one was one was love, right? Um, and not not like romantic love per se, but it was it's actually an essay in, in, in Vogelin about eternity, but um, that, you know, I realized my grandmother had died not too long before, and I, you know, I really loved uh, my, my grandmother, but I also realized that I still love my grandmother. I, in this present moment, do love my grandmother, right, uh, who is dead, um, but I still love her, and that's a meaningful statement to say that I love her, right? I'm not saying that I love a memory of her, that I love, you know, her body or something like this. I actually mean that I love her, that there's some object to my intention there, like, uh, which doesn't really make much sense in a materialist world, right? Like, what is that thing? There's not a thing. You'd have to say it's some sort of psychosis, but it's not, it's real. Uh, and the other was beauty. Beauty is a similar sort of thing. Like, I know a thing is beautiful. It's not just some subjectively satisfying, like as Hildebrand would say, experience. It's not something I'm culturally conditioned to like a sunset or a Mozart symphony, right? Like these are, um, these are real experiences that you have that, um, that are responses to the things, not something you bring to it, but something that it brings to you. Those were both sort of impossible things in my worldview as it stood. Um, and so that kind of opened me up to thinking like, well, whatever is true, it needs to be, it needs to account for these two things for love and for beauty. Wow. I was a weird kid. <laughs> for sure. But that's, that's good. <laughs> the thing that you said about like love and beauty, I mean, when everything else gets stripped away and you're going through suffering, uh, like I, I saw my brother go through this where 
he had studied philosophy at St. Thomas as a seminarian, grappled with the modern philosophy. It, it was just very disillusioning for him. So he put his faith in more of like an anti-intellectual kind of approach to, to life and then experienced some deep suffering in a breakup that he had um, where he felt like God had told him to like let him into this this relationship and it ultimately didn't work and he he came out of it with a with a anxiety disorder that was just very intense and in that like he was questioning everything that he had ever believed and what it came down to for him was i can't account for intimacy so love without god and i can't account for beauty without god and these are things that like i still even if i if even if he couldn't feel them very much he could recognize how important they were and that he wanted to feel those and that he had in the past that those were like real things that they're not just like some chemical being released in the brain or like some need for survival like that just it just doesn't work beauty and intimacy are not enough like a survival mechanism it's just not enough to account for that and so those were the things he held on to even though he couldn't say I'm Catholic or I believe in God. Like all he could really say is I believe in beauty and I believe in love. And that was ultimately enough to, to lead him back. You know? Yeah. There's only one place that that will lead you. And, you know, you don't know where that's going to be at the time. In retrospect, it's, you know, pretty clear. So, you know, you find people occasionally, I find people who are searching and, and they'll, they'll say similar things like, I don't know, you know, what's true, but I believe in love. And you're fine. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> like there's, there's only one place that road goes. Uh, <laughs> so we began the conversation just asking, like, how did it become a thing for you that you not only loved philosophy and loved thinking, but loved literature? And it seems like beauty has been a consistent part of your life. Like there's been a yearning there, not just an intellectual curiosity, but a yearning. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it began, I think probably my first real love and any sort of uh, art was was poetry, which remains probably my guiding light in, in terms of these things. And you know, again, sixteen. Um, so I, you know, it's Charles Bukowski. Just loved Charles Bukowski. I still have a, I have an appreciation for, for Charles Bukowski. Um, and if you don't if you don't know him, you know, he's this down and out, rough, drunkard of a, a poet, and uh, it's rough stuff. Um, but you know, when you're an angsty kid, like you you find something in that, right? And um, one of the things that, that literature especially uh, helps us do is helps us to imagine a, a world that's larger than our own, right? Um, and you see real things about human life in either in other people's accounts or in, in imaginative accounts, and it expands uh, your worldview. And I think that was one of the things that was really, you know, that I was really struggling with as a young person, as a lot of people are, is the world wasn't big enough for my ideas, for my suffering, for whatever it is, you know, but you find in, in art, especially you find it, you find this expansion that uh, there is no joy, there is no sorrow, there's no suffering that that is, you know, not somewhere in, in the great music and in the great, the great novels. And um, so that was that was very helpful, I guess. Um, that's too banal the word helpful. It was, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was it was almost salvific, you know. Um, you know, but you also realize, as I as as I did during this kind of transition, that um, <laughs> that was the thing I questioned too. Like, why do I like this stuff so much? Right? Like, what the, what is the deal? You know, with liter with literature and poetry and music, uh, you know, it became very clear to me 
uh, troublingly clear to me that that all of the stories that I that I like, not even all the stories I like, all the stories, all the good good stories, um, all had this one thing in, in common, uh, which was the redemptive value of sacrificial love. Right? You can just put it in that simple of a phrase. And my favorite favorite, and to this day, my favorite work of art is uh, Wagner's The Ring Cycle. It's great. You know, seventeen-hour opera. If you're ever, you know, looking for something to do for holy shit, seventeen hours. <laughs> but it's 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 really three operas with the prelude. It's awesome. It's, uh, but uh, but I loved it. I was fascinated with it. And Wagner is an atheist, anti-Christian, even in many ways, though was sort of becoming a Christian in some ways. But you know that that great opera cycle and all of his operas are all about that same theme: redemptive value, of sacrificial love. It became like a drum beating in my head. You know, and you go through all the things you've ever loved, and you're like. It's there. It's everywhere. You know? Um, you know, that's the gospel story. Right. Um, and, and and you realize very troublingly, like there's not a single thing I've ever loved that isn't Christ. Um, yeah, that is a troubling thing for an atheist to think. <laughs> oh, terribly, terribly. It was awful. All the time. <laughs> but uh, I'm grateful. <laughs> wow. Everything I've ever thought. Yeah, that's that's tough. What was the feeling of that? Like, was that like a sinking thing in your stomach? Like, what did that mean to you when you started to realize that? Really, it was it was total despair. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny as a convert, everybody likes to talk to, you know, especially when you just convert, everyone wants to hear your story. And it's supposed to be like this happy story. No, <laughs> it was awful. You know, I'd never been more alone because um, I couldn't really commune with my atheist friends because... I sort of had intellectually come to a point that I realized that Christianity was true as an intellectual sort of system, as a way of viewing the world, that it was true. And that was a weird thing because I didn't believe, right? I didn't have faith. I didn't know Christ. And so I was in this really weird place because then you can't really talk to, commune with your Christian friends either because you don't believe. It was it was a very, very hard time. And, um, you know, you realize that at least on the, on the brink of conversion, and you can't, this is the thing, very important thing. You cannot choose to convert. It is not an option, right? It is not like, what shall I do today? You know, go for a walk or convert to Christianity. <laughs> like you can't. Um, I wanted to, but you can't just do that, right? Because it's a gift. Faith is a gift. We know this. This is very clear in the Gospels. And it has to be given to you. And it's something you respond to. Now you can knock, right? Like Christ says, knock and the door might be open to you. And so I was knocking, I guess. Um but, you know, if you don't believe and you want to believe, that's a crazy thing, yeah. you know, because um, and, and you ask everybody and I did, you know, like, what do I do? And they all give you the same totally not helpful answer. Right. They all say, pray about it. You know, <laughs> I think you missed the part where I don't believe. Right. Like, yeah. who to whom do I pray? You know, um, and, and, you know, really no one had anything remotely helpful to say. But uh, I don't I don't I don't fault them for that. Like, what do you say? You know, Um yeah, it was a very hard time, but uh, that ended up, you know, ended up working. If you were Christopher's older brother at that moment, what would you have said to younger Christopher? Well, uh, you know, I will tell you what my friend, uh, who I mentioned the painter Van, uh, did say to me. And uh, this was sort of the thing that spurred a series of events that led to my conversion. We were chatting at this sort of fancy coffee shop because uh, it's Austin. There are fancy coffee shops. And, uh, you know, and we're all even dressed up fancy. We're just fancy people. Um, and uh, having this intellectual debate and, and Van, whom I really, I'll have to introduce you. He out of nowhere slams his hand down on my leg. Hurt. Uh, and it's loud. Everybody, everybody turns, you know. And he goes, 
get thee behind me, Satan. And I was flipped out. I was like, why did you say that? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> you know? um, I was, because um, I was having, we were talking about, you know, I was like, I understand Christianity and, you know, I can, I can sort of do this Christian stuff without really believing. I can take the moral parts and the art parts and all this kind of stuff. And I can sort of live a Christian life without suffering or sacrifice or humility, you know, which is in that. And that was, that was his response. Uh, and so, but I think that's what I, that's what I needed to to see was the how sort of deeply prideful my thinking still was, and that's a really hard thing when you're sort of correct, right? You have the correct ideas about a lot of things, but you can still be you know very very deeply deeply prideful still in a way that will keep you from God, and that and that's that's the devil. So that shocked you, and you were like okay, I guess I need to just start actually praying about it or what? <laughs> no, well, it shocked me because I realized a thing that I had never realized before. Um, everyone thinks that they're a good person, right? Go ask anyone. No one will tell you that they're not a good person. And I too thought I was a good person right? and that I was doing good things. What had never occurred to me was that I might not only be wrong intellectually, which I knew, but that I might be wrong spiritually, that I might be, I might be wrong morally. It had occurred to me that there might be a God and I might not be on his side, but it had not occurred to me that I might be against his side. Um, and that, you know, that sort of places you, because before that, it's like you and God, you know, God's over there, I'm over here. Um, but to realize that it's, it's not quite as simple as that, but you're in, you're in it no matter what, right? Like if the world is like this, you're on a side, you're not a bystander. And, uh, you know, you don't get to wait to join the cosmic adventure whenever you're ready. You're already in it. And that, to me, was was shocking. And so that prompted a serious reevaluation of what I'm doing. What was the reaction? How did that, how, how did you live that, that transition out? Well, I mean, I ran out of the cafe and cried, of course. What else do you do? <laughs> but, uh, uh, <laughs> so, um, it... You know, this is where people shy away from these things. Maybe I shouldn't. I mean, it you know, shortly thereafter it becomes. You know, I have a, a mystical experience. I had a, I you know, I became sort of desperately seeking at this point. Um, and and you realize that you're you're in a, a battle, um, or that other people are battling, and you're the prize. I had a series of dreams and visions, and, and eventually uh, one night, reading the fourth time, I'm reading Augustine's Confessions as an atheist. I had a a vision. I saw a vision of Christ. He didn't tell me what to do or anything. He was just there. That was really the only question. It's like, are you there? It's like, I am I'm here, you know? And, and I, you know, so again, I flipped out. There was a lot of like running out of cafes crying. And so I went, I went back to St. Edward's, this Catholic university I told you about where they were so kind. Um, not because it was like some sort of spiritual home, but because I knew I needed to pray, but I had never prayed before and I didn't know how. But I, I kind of knew that you were supposed to like go somewhere, you know. So even then, I was still kind of Catholic, right? I had this very material, um, sacramental sort of view of the faith. Um, and I remembered that there was this this altar, the shrine, I get outside by the soccer field, and it's a really chintzy thing. It's like two PVC poles, like in a cross, that are painted gold. Um, but it's just the only <laughs> thing I knew. And so I went there and I tried to pray. But of course, I didn't know how to pray. That was the darkest night of all nights, you know, because you realize that you're giving yourself over to something, but that you're still not quite sure that something is real or will have you. Um, and you know that if it fails, you're sunk. 
you know, like you've just put everything you have in this moment. And so, you know, Kierkegaard talks about this leap of faith. A lot of people talk about this sort of thing. Like that's at least what that is, I think is like, and you don't know how it will go. And what are you going to do? How are you going to face anyone tomorrow? Right. If you're like, so what'd you do last night? Oh, I tried to convert to Christianity and it failed. Like, <laughs> like, like what, what? I, I, it's weird. So, and so you just realize that you're, I mean, you really just have this feeling of being just totally lost. And so I spent the whole night there, slept on the ground and woke up a Christian. That's how that, that's how that happened. I don't know what it's like for everybody else, but I assume it's pretty, pretty similar. Um, so... Oh, that's amazing. I don't think we should shy away from those mystical experiences. No, we really shouldn't. We live in this kind of naturalistic, materialist world where people, even Christians, don't really believe in miracles and visions and things. But like this is a this is a sort of basic part of the Christian story, the basic part of the Christian understanding of, of the world. Um, and, you know, it, it happened to the apostles and it happens to us. It's hard to make sense of, but you don't need to make sense of it. Yeah, I love your heart, man. Like there's just something really deeply encouraging to me just hearing this story. It's interesting that you read Augustine so much because so much about this story like feels very Augustinian. Like, oh, he is the patron saint of kids who are too smart for their britches. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and I love the story, um, and and I still do. I mean, he was my confirmation saint, and it's nothing is more. There's no more human story than than that one and i mean it's it's you know it's the lost boy finding himself in in god um but that that journey of discovery and introspection and just the way that he thinks also was so relatable to me because you know if i can see how people would read Augustine and be like you know you get to the late chapters on time and memory and you're like what are you talking about you know <laughs> yeah is this really how you think about like your life and yeah uh, it is <laughs> and, like it's so finding someone who thought like that I think was, was very helpful. Yeah, I really struggled with those chapters. <laughs> sure. No, I totally, they're not really for, for everyone. Um, and it's, uh, but this is the great thing about the saints, right? There's a saint for everyone. Um, and you will always find like whatever, whatever question it is in your life that you're looking for, you know, an answer, an answer to like, there is a saint who has lived out that, that answer. And, you know, I think for people who are sort of intellectually struggling with things, like Augustine is that saint. It's interesting that he's he's the saint because like there is a mystical beauty and a poetic way that he writes that's very I mean I like the the moment that I start to read Augustine I feel like there's something mystical about that like in contrast to to reading Aquinas where I'm like like they both feed me but Augustine does that in a very different way uh, there's something much more poetic about him. Yeah, and it's much it's much more personal. I mean, it begins always with personal experience, and you know, there's a we, we wouldn't really people don't really say that Augustine is a personalist philosopher, or theologian, but he's the all the, the personalist school of people like Hildebrand and uh, Watiwa, even Ratzinger, like all come from sort of that tradition, right? which is complementary with the Thomistic and Scholastic tradition, but it definitely has a different point of, of emphasis. You know, it, it comes from the heart. So how did that whole experience lead you to working at the Hildebrand? Hmm. Well, um, I went to graduate school after I finished college because um, the only skill that you have with an ancient Greek and philosophy degree is the ability to apply to graduate school. <laughs> um, and, uh, but also, I, I had been so dis disenchanted with, with philosophy and with, and with academia, um, I felt very unsatisfied. 
And um, I, I learned about school, University of Dallas, where I, where I went to graduate school, that seemed like my kind of place, right? I mean, it was everybody had read Dante and Goethe and Homer, and they were all serious Catholics. And, um, and I just knew that there was still more I wanted to know, um, books I hadn't gotten to read. So, so I ended up coming to the University of Dallas and uh, finished there and was doing other things like politics and writing and trying to start companies and marketing agencies and political communications. And, uh, and that was all kind of unsatisfying. I really missed philosophy. And, uh, and through a, a former professor at the University of Dallas, uh, Bob Wood, he, whom you met, right, uh, he mentioned the Hildebrand project to me. I had never heard of, I didn't know anything about Hildebrand. I knew Edith Stein though, who was sort of related in some ways. And, you know, I really liked Edith Stein. And so I wrote and gave it a shot. Uh, I did not tell them I had not read Hildebrand and uh, they were having an internship. I was like 28, but I was didn't know what the heck I was doing with my life. So I took this internship with, you know, a bunch of 22 year olds and, uh, and I loved it. It was this wonderful mix of, of philosophy, but also entrepreneurial activities and like running a company. And there was so much potential and it kind of combined all the things I had come to love professionally and intellectually. Uh, and it's a very, I, I wish everybody could have such a company. It's a really unique kind of, kind of role. So, so it's brought together all these different interests and loves that I had in a way that you know, I, I didn't really think I would be able to do. Yeah. So was that where you first encountered Christian personalism and Hildebrand's work? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had my last class in graduate school was on, was on Edith Stein's Finite and Eternal Being, um, which is one of the best books uh, ever. Um, and so that, but that was really my first encounter with realist phenomenology at all at the very, very end of my, my studies. Um, but it, it really stuck with me and, it, and, you know, you read those books every now and then you are like, that's right. Um, and so that was one of those, that's right books. So that, that stuck with me and that was, yeah, that was my first, first experience with that, you know, which has now become sort of my intellectual world, if you will. Sweet. So tell me a little bit about Christian personalism. So just to give everybody that's listening background. So I went to the seminar and like I said, I've been very disillusioned with philosophy and uh, I feel like Christian personalism finally bridged the gap for me of this like division between the mind and the body that or the mind and like, I guess, lived experience that I, I was struggling to see how they could connect. And it was actually really healing to me to go and see that like there are people that recognize this that don't tell me that i'm an intellectual like failure or like imbecile because i don't want to just pick one <laughs> anyway so I, I just felt like i i felt like i learned a lot but also like there was this this part of me that was healed in it was that how you felt or was was there a different reason that you fell in love with it well i'm so glad to hear that for, for start i mean that's just that's wonderful um I think I had a lot of the same attraction to it that, that, that you did and that I think a lot of people do. I mean, you mentioned this kind of, you know, mind-body kind of divide. And I mean, we definitely live in an in a intellectual culture today in which there is an unbridgeable chasm between the objective and the subjective, right? Yeah. I mean, nothing is more common as it's sort of cheap barroom rebuttal than, oh, that's just subjective, man. Yeah. Uh, there's a sort of fundamental principle of... Christian personalism that you find in, in Hildebrand, you find it articulated in, in Karawatiwa, John Paul II, right? That your subjective experience is part of objective reality, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the, the catchphrase way to say that. It doesn't constitute, you know, objective reality, but it's part of it, right? The way that you feel is meaningful. It's real. It's not just 
I'm using air quotes for people who are listening. It's not just subjective, right? Nothing is just uh, anything, right? It's a way of, of approaching reality that begins with your lived experience and never reduces it, right? It never says love is just chemicals or religion is just power, patriarchal, whatever, you know? Like, it doesn't ever reduce one thing to another, right? It has this honesty and this courage to say in the face of phenomena that you don't understand that I don't understand, um, as opposed to making it fit somewhere else. And I found that enlivening. Um, I found that honest. Um, you know, and, and, you, and you see historically, if you look at, at the, the people who have practiced this philosophical method, you see that they have been able to see things that others could not, right? Or did not. I mean, in Hildebrand, you know, you have a number of, of examples. I mean, he's sort of most known as the doctor of the heart, right? I mean, he has this wonderful book on, on the heart, and he reintroduced the heart as a sort of center of the person in Western philosophy. Before this, it had always just kind of been the mind and the will and maybe memory, right? But Hildebrand takes very seriously the affective sphere, the way you feel about things, right? That had been, you know, philosophers tend not to like feelings. They don't fit very well. Right. And, uh, but he begins with that because that's actually sort of how we live. We live out of our, our hearts. And and you see in, you know, a lot of these guys were German, guys and girls were, were German. And, and you see among, among Hild with Hildebrand and Edith Stein, and a number of them, you see this very early opposition to the rising totalitarianism uh, at a time when everyone else was trying to sort of make sense of it and fit it into a, a system. Um, you have these people say, no, this doesn't fit into the system. This is a new sort of evil. Um, and it must be opposed from the beginning, right? And the only people who were doing that at that very, very early stage were were people who were practicing this sort of, of philosophy. And I mean, that's a historically a very interesting, but also very important thing, because there is, you realize there is this tendency, and this has nothing to do with Thomas. Thomas is anything, not at all like this, but there is a tendency amongst Thomists to sort of fit everything into something Thomas said, right? Thomas yeah. would never have done this himself. Um, but like, that's, that's bad philosophizing. That's not taking the world seriously. So uh, that's a little bit about personalism. So this is just a question of curiosity for me, but what was it that the Christian personalists saw in totalitarianism that no one else could see? And why, why were they able to see that? Um, so one of the things that I think was probably, there were a lot of things, but probably the anti-personalism of it, right? The way that it disregarded the reality of the human person the way that it sort of substituted the folk, right, the, the mass of people um, for the community, right? Um, this is something both Hildebrand and Stein talk about is that, you know, the, the, the Nazis are in a sense right in, in, in diagnosing certain problems, right, that people feel alienated, they feel isolated. And their solution was to create, you know, the people, the Reich, the nation, the folk, right, um, in which the individual is subsumed into the mass. But that, but that, that, obliterates the human person. Um, a better solution is community, right? Is family, um, is, you know, community that are built out of, of shared loves, not out of shared purposes, right? Edelstein distinguishes between communities and associations by saying that associations are groups that come together for a purpose. Uh, communities are groups that come together out of shared bonds of mutual love, you know, and, uh, and those are very different, but I mean, you can, and you see that stuff today, right? People are lonely, they are isolated, they are disconnected, and they look for solutions to this. And, you know, there are a lot of solutions out there that don't take seriously 
the reality of a human person, which is which is a reality that that is has a deep interiority, right? That cannot be subsumed. So that that was one thing that that I think enabled them to see very early um, how why this was a problem and going to become a problem. Yeah, that is so good, man. That is so good. I so that was actually like the moment where I finally felt like I had a home in philosophy was when I I can't remember what professor it was is there it was said multiple times through the seminar was that like your heart and your subjective experience is not to be just thrown out like that matters that that actually is real I was like oh my god I feel like (laughs) so much of my experience within the catholic world has been like this we must rediscover objectivity objectivity is everything like emotions are and, and this is this is not true of most this is more of like in isolated experiences that were very loud experiences i think where i felt like i have felt like in the past this voice that like our faith is supposed to be emotionless and that emotions are like the opposite of catholicity you know emotions that's a protestant like new age thing and we Catholics were intellectual, you know, <laughs> like that has been that was the reason why I struggled with Catholic philosophy. Is that that issue? Yeah, I, I mean, that's that it, it, it is an issue. I mean, it's certainly, you know, and there, it's there are reasons for it. there are reasons for all these things. And I mean, in the in a lot of these extreme reactions will, will pass. But I mean, you do see in America, at least you had, you know, you had some pretty wacky responses to Vatican II, right? I think Vatican II is just absolutely wonderful. But people did some crazy stuff with it. And and then there was a very reasonable sort of pushback against that stuff, uh, which Hildebrand was was a, a leading figure there, not against the council, but against these wacky things that, that people were doing that did become sort of overly, overly emotional. And there is such a thing as becoming overly emotional, sunk in the emotions, right? Sure. Um, to the point that they are no longer reasonable. And I mean, you have to, you know, we were talking earlier about an integrated life, right? I mean, these things have to be integrated, you know, too, too much of one or the other really does risk upsetting the balance. I'm sorry that you had this experience. No, 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 that's all good. Yeah. Let's go back to beauty real quick. I mean, that's really a pretty foundational part of what this community is about trying to become better stewards of beauty, better uh, experiencers of beauty. What are, in, in becoming closer to these, to the Christian personalists in their writing, like how did that influence your appreciation for beauty? Um, well, I, you know, again, this, this issue of, of the, of this reality that subjective experience is part of objective reality, right? That beauty is a way of knowing. I think that was one thing that was very helpful to me is realizing the sort of intelligibility uh, of of the beautiful, even even if it's ultimately something that remains, you know, finally inexplicable, that knowledge is communicated in, in beauty, right? That that we know, um, similarly in love, right? Like we know in in love, and there's a the more you lo- love someone, the more you can know them, and the more you know them, the more you can love them. Uh, it's a similar thing with uh, with with beauty that it that it it conveys an intelligibility um, about God about whatever the object of beauty, whether that's another person. Um, so that, I want to say solved, solved is never the right word in philosophy, but that sort of filled in a, a, a lacuna that I, I had been looking for, like to try and make sense of how beauty works. And this, in the sense that I think all of us have that, like, you know, your favorite poets, your favorite composers, whatever, like you feel this intimacy with them, like you know them, right? Like um, I'm not really 
speaking metaphorically at all when I say that like me and Rilke are good friends, you know, yeah. um, we go way back. Um, <laughs> we have journeyed together, you know, and uh, I know that, you know, he didn't really consent to that per se, but he did in giving me these works, you know, but, but you feel like there's this communion. And um, so uh, particularly the works of, of Adrian Stein helped me find a way of, of thinking about that. And then, uh, and then Hildebrand's work on aesthetics, which was sort of his, his life's work in some way, uh, helped me to really understand the sort of role of beauty in the life of the Christian, the way in which beauty conveys God. And this is, because this is, this is a really important point that when you talk about beauty, um, where a lot of people are mistaken, I think. Um, and this was really hard for me to figure out when I was trying to figure out what the heck beauty was, right? Um, people a lot of times want to reduce it. Again, even Christians, right? Catholics want to reduce beauty and say, oh, well, the beauty of the mountains is really the beauty of the grandeur of God, right? It's really the bigness of God and the mountains are sort of a metaphor for God or the infinite sea or whatever. And I mean, these things sort of fail when you start looking at smaller things, I guess. But um, but that's the way that a lot of Christians have tried to make sense of beauty um, as uh, this sort of reducing it to saying something about God. But that isn't the case, right? Like that's just not what your experience of the beauty of the mountains is, right? And it turns out that, and something I knew very well, as, as an atheist, the mountains are still beautiful, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you can experience that. So you have to take that seriously, right? Um, and so one of the things, you know, that Hildebrand says is that it's a mystery, right? Like it says, he doesn't reduce it to anything. He says that the, the physical objects, the material world is a sort of pedestal for the beauty of, God, of God's grandeur. But it isn't just this sort of in-between, right? It's this, has this quasi-sacramental quality uh, he calls it, which, you know, you read those things, and I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's the thing that I always knew was happening, but I didn't know the words for it. Um, and, you know, so, so that was very helpful and important to me. I think for people who are interested, you know, the people in this community who have a deep interest in beauty and creative things, like that's important for them too. Like this is what you can do with beauty, right? Um, that's an amazing thing. So you had a purpose in trying to invite creatives to the seminar this summer uh you actually really wanted people to come that were not philosophers by trade or i did which made for a very entertaining experience let me tell you what like that was like really really funny seeing the clash of those two worlds um was it a clash yeah um well, it, it was it was great. It was, it was it was kind of funny. There was definitely a moment in the sort of application review process where people were asking me like, "Who are these people?" Uh, and I'm like, "They're good. Just it's cool. Um, I vouch for them." Um, do they know philosophy? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, just trust me. Um, and uh, but because it's important, it's in part because it's important to me, right? I mean, I have I have roots in in both worlds, right? I mean, I've run a lot of marketing. I mean, I've uh, you know, I have a, a real interest in making beautiful things. You know, I geek out over typography and our book design. And, like, I know how important that stuff is. And I and I also know that, you know, a group like this, like Catholic Creatives, and, um, like, they're, they're doing it, right? I mean, you all are trying to make the world a more beautiful place. And you are trying in, in, in ways to, to proclaim uh, the glory of God to, to people in these humble means, right? In these quasi-sacramental uh means and so there's always you know you talked about sort of armchair philosophers like there is there is sometimes a big disconnect between the people who are sort of thinking philosophy and the people who are doing it like the people where aesthetics meets you know the rubber meets the road is is in design 
and I've noticed, you know, there's this massive disconnect where like, it didn't used to be the case. 200 years ago, you know, every philosopher who wrote about art knew a lot of stuff about artists and knew a lot of artists. They were all friends and the artists knew the philosophers. But today that is not the case, you know. Um, and I think everyone is impoverished because of that. You know, I mean, it really challenges philosophers when someone who's working in art or design can just say, like, no, that idea is bad. It doesn't work. <laughs> like, um, yeah, because you're like, what? I hadn't, you know, like that. That's a different sort of dialogue. And it's really, I think it's very important and mutually enriching for everyone supposed to be able to give a reason for your faith, right? Um, and that's, I think all of us have some sort of faith in the power and the efficacy of creativity and design, right? And we should be able to give a reason for that, a justification, right? And that justification is not like it's neat or it matters or, you know, Steve Jobs did it. Like it's, it's like we have a fundamentally Christian Catholic justification of that. Um, I don't think a lot of people maybe can articulate that or know it deeply, but I, I, I guess I believe that they want to. Yeah. And I mean, again, talking about integrated culture, like we all need to speak this stuff together, right? Um, yeah. So that was the hope. I think it went pretty well. There were there were moments of mutual enlightenment <laughs> and some iron sharpening iron occasionally. Yeah. No, I mean, it felt like a collision of worlds in a lot of ways, but it was like that was the thing that I liked about it the most. Uh, and I came out of it so much more confident in speaking about Catholic creatives and what, and actually it gave me a lot more clarity about what I needed to do. Like that, that statement that you said earlier about like an association is a group of people that like come together for a purpose, but a community is a group of people that come together because of a shared bond of love. Like that was actually pretty like revolutionary for me in trying to figure out how to how to help to steward this. That marked a pretty important transition away from thinking about Catholic creatives as like, we're trying to gather everybody for the purpose of like bringing the church back to like a better place in its art to this is a community that really loves beauty and loves God through it uh, and, and love each other because we have that shared experience. That was like a really big eye-opening thing for me. Because associations will end, right? I mean, either the purpose will be realized or the purpose will fail. Um, and then the association loses any reason to be, but a community will endure. Um, and I, I think that's, that's, that's just great. That's wonderful to, to hear. I mean, I think this is a community that, I mean, I don't know, who cares more about aesthetics than a bunch of creatives? I, mean, I think nobody, right? I mean, it should be the, these are the people. And it also, like, the second thing that came out of it was that really embracing the Catholicity of beauty, that we do have a really strong understanding of it, and that you don't have to just be an artist to get that. And it also really pushed me to try to have a better way of talking about it, which I don't think that I've really gotten to that point. I'm really grateful to you guys for being a facilitator of that, because uh, it, it's become very obvious to me that, that that's very necessary. Like we need to have a better and clearer philosophical understanding of beauty as a church, but like as artists, as people that are in a creative field, like we don't, we need to just stop being like, it matters, like you said, or um, just saying that as a, oftentimes I'll get, I'll get pushback on it and I'll just get really frustrated and pissed off and just be like, well, screw you guys, like, I'm out of here, you know, like, they just don't care, they don't get it, you know, and I put them in the category of people that don't get it, and go try and find the people that do. That's not how we're supposed to live. 
uh, and I, I do set, have this sense of like, that's the wrong way of going about this. Like, we need to have a better understanding of how to talk about beauty. Even though I'm not, I don't feel like I am, I am there where I'm like, I can be an apologist for this. I feel like I can at least be like, all right, guys, we need to stop this conversation and you need to go read Maritan and you need to go read <laughs> Von Hildebrand and we'll come back and talk later. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I do. I do have, a, I think, a bad habit of recommending books and giving homework and conversations a lot that <laughs> I, apparently my friends don't appreciate so much. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's people want to want to know. And I mean, you're if you can articulate these things, even if you can't fully, I mean, I can tell you this, that, you know, in the, in the years that I have been a Catholic and I, I talk a lot about it. Right. Um, and, and I've read lots of books and, you know, I try to answer the questions that people have. Right. I mean, if people ask me something and I don't know, I'm going to try and go read some books and call them back in you know, three months and be like, Hey, you know, I, I, I think I know the thing that you're asking. Um, but I've realized that the thing that matters to people is not, that I happen to have an answer, it's that I took the time to find the answer, right? And that I took the time to talk with them about it, right? They might not believe anything I have to say, but what but what does come across is that, you know, that dude's serious about it. Like he's really trying. And something about that earnestness, I think it really strikes people, especially people, you know, we were talking about earlier who are kind of sometimes thoughtless. They're like, oh, well, gosh, like I haven't really thought about these things. And at least this person has and cares enough about me to come talk to me about it, right? Um, that, that does a lot. And so I know a lot of people think, you know, I, I can't be this apologist. I can't know all this stuff. That doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is, is the care that you show for the things that you believe and for, and for other people in, in doing that. And that, that's really what comes across um, and that anyone can do. Yeah. Well, man, I, I feel really grateful for just having got to have this conversation, just listen to, to your story. I just want more people in our community to be pointed towards a greater, deeper understanding of beauty and of philosophy as I think like I realized how much I was yearning for that, but had just written it off. And I think a lot of people in our community are probably in that kind of same space. So what would you say as as the reason why to someone who, let's say like they're, they're a filmmaker or an artist, but have just not really embrace actually reading philosophy like why do they need to go and read hildebrand uh what work do they need to read to start well i mean for i think for a lot of the listeners here um his aesthetics um is a great place and also the the, the very short very accessible essay beauty in the light of the redemption uh you can download for free on our website is a is a great place to start you know and, and why yeah, you know, why is, is different for everyone, I guess, but it's you know it's the things that we're that we're talking about that you know to give a reason for your faith and ultimately to help convey that to other people, right? I mean, I think we all probably know the the quote from uh, Ratzinger. He says, you know, the two most effective apologia for the church today are the saints and the artists that she's nurtured in in her womb. And um, artists today is 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 a broader category than it used to be, and it includes all kinds of creative disciplines, right? And you're evangelizing through that. Those are the irreducible things that confront people about Catholicism. And if you can be a part of that, then I mean, you get uh, to, to help, you know, I mean, you get to, to evangelize, which is a great, a great blessing. And I think the more, I don't know, I guess the more articulately you can do that, the more you can help, the better you can do it, I think. Uh, that's my hope. Yeah, that's good. All right. 
last segment we're just going to do a couple rapid fire questions you can okay. take as long as you want to answer or whatever but uh all right favorite favorite pipe tobacco and it's, uh, <laughs> now we're getting to the, the really pipe. important stuff uh, <laughs> uh well I, I i have two tobaccos that, that i smoke one is a, is a blend that i make uh, myself of a burley and the cavendish and usually i put a little bit of perique in it um and then uh, make barren navy flake so if you're looking for like a classic strong navy flake go like mcbarren awesome it's what i'm smoking today um so those are great uh as far as pipes go i mean there's an infinite variety which is just wonderful um i'm kind of an english guy at the end of the day like dunhill it's just cla classic, you know, there's this wonderful sort of expressive tradition that's that's developed in uh, Denmark mainly and um, these, these really neat pipes and I, I like them a lot, but uh, uh, in my mind, it's, it's really hard to beat like a Dunhill Prince or Billiard. Right, good. Okay, and three works of art, either poetry or music. Let's do poetry, music, and uh, fine art that people need to go and just like spend some time with. Well, I mean, I've mentioned Rilke before. If you haven't read Rilke, read him. If you have, read him again. I mean, the, the sort of depth and intimacy of Rilke is, is unparalleled, I think. Um, you know, his pictures, um, his book of images. I mean, everyone knows the archaic course of Apollo. If you don't, go read it. His sonnets to Orpheus are just magic. You know, I mean, they're inspired works. So love, love, love uh, Rilke. Um, as far as what music, um, you know, I'll go ahead and I'll recommend the big one, like Wagner's Ring Cycle. Invest in it. Do it. It's worth it. it you know, it's one weekend of your life, um, but you'll you'll really appreciate it. You know, but if you're if you're afraid of that, just try classical music. Just try it. You know, a lot of people don't listen to it. Try it. This is something Fritz kept saying at our, at our seminar. Um, and the thing I always recommend, and I'll recommend it to listeners here, is, um, and, you know, if you don't have, find some, find a friend who likes classical music. And just find the same piece. Listen to one piece. Listen to Vivaldi's Four Seasons or, um, you know, the Brahms Violin Concerto. And listen to three different recordings of it. Listen to five minutes of each one. And you will you will find a whole world there. And you will find that you like some things and don't like other things. Um, and you'll be asking yourself why. And then you'll be off to the races. So uh, of, of loving something that is, that is difficult, I think, for people to love today. But there's so much... There's so much to it. And I'm not saying it's the only good thing or that's all you should listen to, but it is a good thing. Yeah. And there's a way into it. And if, I don't, you know, if you if you ignore it or don't know it, um, eh, you know, that's on you eventually, you know. So you're missing out. Yeah, yeah. A piece of fine art. Oh, fine art. Badly. Um, I'll recommend him because I had never heard of him. Um, Charles Webster Hawthorne. He was an American painter from the... Cape Cod or something like this. They have a painting of his in the in the Dallas Museum of Art. If you're if you're in Dallas, you know, little known painter, but, but really good. These wonderful life scenes of all these fishermen and um, great humanity to them. Really, really wonderful portraiture. And, and I mean, there's very little on him. So I think he's someone who should be rediscovered. All right, and then uh, a movie that you just really love that people should see. <laughs> uh, my, my wife will be laughing if she listens to this. Uh, I don't really like movies. <laughs> but, uh, oh, no. <laughs> no uh, I, don't watch, I don't watch a lot of movies. Um, but uh, um, I, always, I always recommend Half Tongue in Cheek, but Half Not, Prince's Purple Rain. I'm a huge Prince fan. 
Uh, if you haven't seen Purple Rain, see it. I mean, it's a, <laughs> right. it's a wonderful thing. You are an incredible but, uh, person. <laughs> I, don't see it with me because I will try to sing all the songs and I can't do it. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I know all the words. Um, but uh, or if you or Once Upon a Time in the West is the great Western. So I love Westerns, too. If you haven't seen that, watch that. All right. Great. All right, dude, that's that's good. So where can people find more about you and what you're involved in? Uh, Hildebrandproject.org. Uh, it's our website. We're on Facebook slash Project. Uh, we're on Twitter or on Instagram. We're on, we're on all the places that you know people are supposed to be, uh, I think. I don't know. We're not on Snapchat. We're too old for that. Um, <laughs> but, or whatever. There's probably some other thing. I don't think I want you guys on Snapchat. <laughs> You know, email me directly. I, you know, I'd love to talk. We love hearing from people. So, um, you know, we're, we're around, or if you're, if you're around Dallas, come find me. We'll go have a coffee or a beer. What's in the, in the future for the Hildebrand project? What, what's coming down the pike that you want people to know about? And more and better. Uh, so we just released in defense purity, um, which is the, our third book from Hildebrand press. Uh, we are preparing, you'll hear it here first. We have not announced it anywhere. Uh, we're, we're, uh, just about to publish The Art of Living, which is a fantastic little book. It was originally titled uh, Fundamental Moral Attitudes, which is you know, maybe a more informative title, but it's a great book on, on reverence, on faithfulness, hope, communion, just these little little chapters on each one, little gems, great book. Uh, and, this, and then in the spring, we'll be releasing Aesthetics too. So a lot of people have been wondering when, when that's finally coming out. So it's it's finally coming out soon. So that, that's kind of on our, on our publication side. And um, it's a big year. Yeah, yeah, we got a lot of stuff and some, some other stuff I can't tell you about, so stay, stay tuned. But then more events, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be doing, uh, you know, our seminar in Franciscan each year is going to keep getting bigger. We'll be actually, we're laying, laying the groundwork for doing a European seminar uh, this summer. So if anyone's, you know, been looking for an excuse to take a trip to Europe, we're happy to give you that excuse. Um, so, yeah, more, more, more of the same, but in, you know, more places and at a larger scale. Great. And this summer's seminar is going to be on the liturgy, right? Uh, we don't know yet, but it, it, it may very well be, or maybe on ethics. We've released a couple books now on, on, on ethics. Um, so there's, there's still some talk on that. If, and you know, if we get enough feedback that people want a recurring seminar on beauty, we will try to do it. Right. I and mean, we want to do it. Oh, dude. It's sort of our thing. We're, we published lots of books and lots of things, but really like we're all sort of classical music junkies, the Living project. We're all like beauty people. That's really our great love. And, um, so the more events we can do on that, um, you know, the happier we are, and the, the more market feedback we get, um, that that's viable, well, you know, the, the easier it is for us to do it. Yeah, man, I would love to talk at some point about about that specific thing and how we could help, like, get the word out about it if that's something you guys want to do. But I feel like there's a role that you guys are playing that is really crucial and very needed for this community that like nobody else is playing right now and so i just i'm really grateful for that grateful for your spirit and for your willingness to share the story with this man it's been great well thanks and same same to you i mean that that's very much a role that no one was was filling and you guys are it's just it's wonderful to see and i'm very excited about it uh, yeah i hope the best for for you personally and for the whole community all right man well thank you have a good rest of your day man thanks god bless bye In 2016, we issued a call to creatives, entrepreneurs, designers, and artists from all over the continent to come together in Dallas because we believed that the time was ripe for a new renaissance to take place in the church.
85 of the most talented young Catholic leaders in the Americas answered the call, coming together because of this shared vision. And what took place at that summit was a flowering of community that was beyond description. And it is now clear that new da Vinci's, Mozart's, Michelangelo's, Beethoven's, and Medici's are being brought together to blaze new trails for the gospel, to build new businesses, ministries, and works of art that will be catalysts for massive culture change. And if you are listening to this, then you have also answered this call, and we are so grateful for your participation in this movement. If you want to hear more from the speakers, participate in monthly professional development webinars, and be publicly represented on the Catholic Creatives website, you can make this happen by supporting us on Patreon. Your support and your commitment are vital for the growth and mission of Catholic Creatives. And the rewards are awesome. So your help means everyone can benefit even more from our community this year as we sponsor our creative projects and plan next year's summit. The time is ripe for a new renaissance, a counter wave of beauty. Our world needs aesthetically and philosophically articulate leaders, artists, creatives, and risk takers. Our world needs you. We'll look forward to hearing more from you in the community on Facebook and Slack and at the regional meetups and at the summit. We'll see you there.